We're going to be in First uh, John chapter five this morning. First John chapter five. If you want to turn in your Bibles, hope you brought your Bible. You can read along with us. If you don't have a Bible, the passage will be on the screen. I'm going to read out loud. You read silently. First John chapter five. This is God's word to us this morning. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade. But the word of our God, it stands forever. We continue on our series in 1 John. Uh, We have only a couple weeks left here um, to finish this book before we get into the Christmas season. But we uh, look this morning, we're going to start with shoes. I like shoes. You like shoes? I'm good with shoes. I prefer flip-flops. My natural attire, if I were preaching in Florida, would be shorts, a button-down shirt, and rainbow sandals. Uh, That's what I wore growing up to church. So for those of you that are upset that I'm not wearing a suit, this is a step up for me. Um, Just be happy I'm wearing shoes at all. Shoes, shoes, you know, the most famous shoe company in the world is probably Nike, isn't it? Nike. Uh, to be precise, that's where we're going to start this morning is with Nike shoes. You love Nikes. We, what is the, what's, known, what's their logo known as? The swoosh. Did you know the swoosh is actually a wing? Because Nike is a Greek word that means victory. In fact, Nike, or Nike, as it's pronounced in the Greek, is used four different times in this text. It's the word overcome. Nike was a Greek goddess. She was the goddess of victory and speed and strength. And she was known to fly because she was fast. And so originally what the Nike swoosh was, was the sign of wings coming off Nike, the god, the Roman god. And what Paul talks about here, excuse me, John talks about here in bringing up Nike, which he's talking about victory or overcoming. The phrase, the the motto that Nike uses is, you can do it. But in reality, what the word means is victory or overcoming. So I guess it fits to some degree. But what John is after in using this word Nike this morning is he is calling us and he's saying what he wants for you as believers as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ, and what I desire for you is that you would overcome the world. What that means is that you would overcome all the barriers and all the burdens of this world to obey God and obey God's commandments rightly. That you would have victory in the Christian life. That's what John wants for us. That's what I want for us. That's what I want for myself. And John's desire is that we would overcome the world. Now, how do we overcome? Well, we're gonna go from shoes to Halloween, Halloween this week. Um, Halloween has become a great part of my life. I was homeschooled growing up, grew in a household in which I was not allowed to go trick-or-treating. So I am gladly participating in my children's trick-or-treating. As an adult, my parents let me said one year when I was 14 years old that I could go trick-or-treating. And a kid in the youth group found out about it and told his parents, and we got a nasty voicemail 
saying, how dare you let your child go trick-or-treating? I've been bitter about it ever since, as you can tell. <laughs> Anyways, where was I? Shoes to Halloween. Halloween, that's right. How, or how do we overcome? In our culture, we think of overcoming and who overcomes. Who, do we, or who are the great overcomers? It's superheroes. And this week, superheroes got dressed up and they took to the streets in great mobs. And they showed up at your front door and like a riot, they demanded candy. And if you didn't give them candy... I don't know what they did, killed your dog, stole something from your yard, but little superheroes were running all over the streets of middle-class neighborhoods in America this week. And what's the story of superheroes? Superheroes are those who overcome. Superheroes are those, and what happens in all our superhero stories is a great and radical change happens to them so that they can overcome, right? Right? The Hulk gets angry and it suddenly explodes into a green monster. A Spider-Man gets bit by a spider and suddenly a great and radical change comes over him. Captain America goes from some sort of, I don't know, cryogenic experiment and he becomes super strong and has great ability. Batman puts on his utility suit and Superman puts on his tights and his cape. A radical change that allows you to overcome. Now, oddly enough, that's what John is talking about here this morning. As I try to connect it to, that was a really lame attempt to try to connect things relevantly. But there we go. All through what John wants us to do, what's, what he's pointing out this morning, is that what we need to be overcomers, if you want to be victorious, that you need to go over, undergo a radical change in your life. A radical change. Now, if you think about life, what are the most radical changes that you can experience in life? There's all kinds of great ex- movements, transformations. When you go from crawling to walking, that's a big deal change, Right? Especially for your parents who are going, oh no, now they can get into everything. Your potty training, that's a big change. Am I right, parents? It seems to take years, but it is a big change. Going to school for the first time, going through puberty, that's a big change, right? By the way, I have a sore throat this morning, so if my voice squeaks, speaking of puberty, you know why. Uh, Leaving home, that's a big change. When you strike out on your own, getting married, that's a massive transformation. That's a radical change in your life. Getting old, feeling your body not work the way it's supposed to, that's a radical change. But I think more than any other change, the most radical change that you can experience is to go from what? From nothing to being born, to go from being inside your mother's womb to being brought into this world. The moments of greatest transition transition in life, you have no recollection of it. You don't remember it. And if you say you do, we have a counselor that you can meet with. You have no recollection of the day that you were born. But John is saying this, that the radical change that you need, if you're going to be an overcomer, if you're going to be victorious in the Christian life, is that you must be born. Born again is how we often talk about it now. What's he talking about here? He says to be born again spiritually. What does that mean? Now, we have different understandings of what it means to be born again. In our particular culture and, and, and society, we have this understanding of, of what it is to be born again. And that's the first question we're going to look at this morning. Two questions to guide our time. First is simply this. This whole idea, this radical change of being born again or rebirth or born of God is given in these various phrases in the scriptures. We're going to go through via questions this morning. What does it mean to be born again? You can pop that question back up on the screen. 
John will allude to rebirth or being born again multiple times in this text. He talks about it in other places in his gospel as well, the phrase born again. We, that term born again is used even in a cultural ways today. Like people will talk about the difference of there's various kinds of Christians even sociologically as they do surveys. There's someone who's culturally Christian and then there's a born again Christian. Those are two different people. The way there's, there's, we think of it as being different. A cultural Christian is somebody who are the Christers. They show up to church on Christmas and Easter. There's some sort of kind of culturally, they would say, yes, I'm a Christian. My parents went to church. They took me to church as a kid. That's what it means to be a Christian. In our culture, being born again means that you're, you're one of those radical Christians. Like, you believe in the Bible, and you go to church week in and week out, and you, 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 you try to hold to these commandments. And perhaps they think of an anti-intellectual approach to Christianity, or someone who, a born-again Christian, they, they think of somebody who went from a, a radical conversion, somebody who was a, a drug dealer on Friday night and Sunday morning gave his life to Jesus and never touched drugs again. That's what we think of as a born-again People will say, I'm a Christian, but not one of those born-again types. But the, but the Bible, that, that's not how the Bible views born-again. That's seen as peripheral. That's seen as an extra experience of the Christian life to be born-again. But to be born-again, it means this. And here's, here's the definition, key definition for you this morning. Being born of God is a definitive event. It's a definitive event where the Holy Spirit of God transforms us from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. To be born again, to be born of God is a definitive event where the Holy Spirit of God transforms you from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. It means you've been regenerated. That means you had stopped generating. You were dead. You weren't doing anything. And the engine had to be re-revved. You had to be brought back to life. This is how the Bible talks about our spiritual state before God invades our lives, is you are dead in your sins. What do dead people do? They do nothing, nothing at all. And so to be reborn again, to be born of God, is you are brought from that dead state to an alive state. And new birth, what we have to see here, is not, is not an extra event. You don't become a Christian and then get new birth. It is not a peripheral experience in the Christian life. It is the base experience of the Christian life. It is the essential beginning of the Christian life. If you have not been born again, you are not a Christian. That's what John would say. This means if you're going to belong to the family of God, then you must be born of God. You must be born of God. There are not Christians and born-again Christians. There are non-Christians and there are born-again Christians. Those are the categories the only category of Christian is a born-again one. So let's get rid of the cultural categories we have for this idea of born-again. And the main place where we see this idea of born-again utilized is in actually in John's gospel, in John chapter 3, in which Jesus meets in the middle of the night with a man named Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was not an anti-intellectual. Nicodemus was not some hick from the backwoods. Nicodemus was wealthy, intellectual, a part of the ruling class, and he was a Pharisee. He was religious upon religious. He was highly religious. And yet it is to Nicodemus that Jesus says, you must be born again. Which means this, that all religion is not being born again. Church going is not being born again. All the trappings of religiosity is not being born again. For years people will come to church and think they're a Christian who have not been born again. Who have not had a renewing work done in their hearts. New birth is not an option 
It is the central and essential to what it is to be a Christian. You must be, Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 7. You must be born again. And this is important. Now, to be, I mean, to be careful here, though, not to conflate everyone's experience of new birth into a, to something external. This new birth experience externally looks different for different people. You have your classic experience of the drug dealer who gets saved on Sunday morning and never touches it again. Never again. But then there are those who, they're not even sure when they got, when this new birth happened. Let me give you, Tim Tim Keller gives two great illustrations of this in talking about the idea of new birth. Gives two illustrations from two various men's lives. One is a man named C. Everett Koop. Uh, he tells of his conversion. He was a surgeon, and he wrote of his own conversion story that he was sitting. He, when a nurse that he worked with in the hospital took him to a church, 10th Presbyterian Church in downtown Philadelphia. And, and she took him to the church, and he heard the gospel preached. And he sat there and goes, huh, I'm not really sure what I just heard, but that was nice to be at church. And week in and week out, he kept going to church. And a year later, he said he looked up and he realized one day that he believed everything he was hearing. And he understood everything he was hearing. And he looked around and he said, these are my people and this is the God that I serve. And he said, I don't know when I went from being dead spiritually to being alive spiritually. But at some point in that year, it happened. Take that, just suppose that to Martin Luther. He celebrated the Reformation this past week. Martin Luther, the great starter of the Reformation, his experience, his conversion experience was radical. It says this, that he was sitting, um, he was sitting there and he didn't understand the word of God. He was struggling. He used to like pull his hair out and beat his head against the wall. He would struggle with God's word. And it said that he was reading Romans 1 verse 17 and it said, suddenly, this is what he writes, suddenly I realized there was a righteousness that comes from God and is received by faith. And the moment I received it, I began to live. And he said, at that moment, I felt that I was ushered through the open gates into paradise. It was immediate. He felt a radical experience, and that is not an experience for everybody. And the same way, right? The whole whole, uh, analogy here is birth. Not all births are the same, right? Right, women? Some births take days. And some births, they happen in the back of a taxi cab, because they are different in the same way it goes here. Now, there is a, a definitive moment in which the Holy Spirit of God takes you from death to life, but you may not know when that is. And it may not be experientially and externally radical like it is for the drug addict, perhaps. But it does happen, and it is definitive, and it is a one-moment experience. People have various experiences in how they've come to new birth and what it looks like, but it all, the source of it is all the same. How do you come, how do you get born again? That would be the question. If if you must be born again, if that is the command, if that's the beginning of the Christian life, how do you get born again? Well, this is a part of the good news. Do you have to do anything to qualify for rebirth? No. No. This is part of the good news of the gospel. You don't do anything to be born again. It happens to you. Religion says, do this, and then you get God. But new birth says, Christianity says, no, God comes and finds you. He gets you. He raises you up. And I'm going to give you a really profound illustration from biology. Really profound. All right? It's this. You had nothing to do with your conception. Did you know that? In fact, you had nothing to do with your birth into physical life. 
Nothing. You don't remember it. You didn't do anything. You didn't raise your hand and ask to go live in the world. You didn't ask for those people to be your parents. You didn't ask to be conceived and you didn't ask to be born. It happened to you. Someone else birthed you. That's how it is with spiritual birth. That we are born again by the work of the Spirit. It says, we love because he first loved us. Now this is an important, there's a key theological distinction that is going to be made here. And the distinction is this. The theological word, the bigger word, the 50 cent word for born again is regeneration. And the key theological distinction is this, is regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration precedes faith. That if you profess faith in Jesus, it means that something happened inside of you that preceded that confession and that profession of faith. In North America, we don't necessarily like this doctrine. And we don't like this distinction because we like autonomy. We like our own, we like to give ourselves a lot of credit. We like to say, I chose Jesus. I decided. I walked the aisle. I prayed the prayer. I went after Jesus. But the Bible says what? What were you like when Jesus found you? You were dead spiritually. Dead people aren't super active. Dead people don't pray prayers. Dead people don't walk aisles. Don't pray. Dead people don't raise hands. This is not what dead people do. Dead people don't make choices. They don't make discoveries. They don't get to make themselves alive. Something outside of them has to make them alive. Faith doesn't precede regeneration. Regeneration precedes faith. God invades us makes us alive, gives us a new heart, takes you from spiritual death to spiritual life, and then you're enabled to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Look at the stories of the Bible and how this works out. Look at the story of Saul. You know, Saul becomes the great missionary Paul who takes the gospel to the ends of the earth in many ways. And Saul, when he, would, when he became a believer, he was on the road to Damascus, and he was against Jesus and then when Jesus shows up on the road to Damascus, he has to ask Saul's permission before he invades his life, doesn't he? He says, Saul, can I, can I blind you with a light and change your life? And if you would just raise a hand, if you would just pray a prayer, then, then I would invade your life. Is that what happens? No, that's not what happens. He invades Paul's life with a light pow, and Paul's life is changed right there. He didn't ask for it. He was going the opposite direction from God. He was persecuting God's people, and yet God invaded his life and changed him in that instance. God invades like a tornado into Saul's life. The same thing, you want to see God's power? Because some of you would say, oh my goodness, but we resist God. Yes, you do. But at some point, if God really wants to, he says, yeah, your resistance, I'm just going to push that aside. Let me give you an illustration. Jacob. It was a scene in, in Genesis where Jacob wrestles all night with God. Now, when you think about that, you're going, huh, that seems like it would be kind of a mismatch. And yet Jacob, I mean, Jacob must have been a pretty spry fellow. He's kind of an old guy, but he had old man strength. He had old man strength, and he hung with God all night long. And yet, the, what happens in the morning? It says, what does God do? He reaches out, and he touches his hip socket. Pow, hip socket out. Now, what does this mean? It means all night God, all his force has been to not destroy Jacob. It's kind of like when I wrestle with my sons. All my strength goes to not landing on them until one of them takes a rubber shoe and scrapes it across my leg hairs, and then you see little boys flying everywhere. (laughs) But that's how it is with your regeneration. You may resist, but with a touch, boom, 
I, my free will, I'm going to resist God. Yes, you can resist God. And he, he says, nope, you're not going to resist me anymore. And praise be to God for that. In which when I was running from God, he came after me and he changed my life. God takes the loving initiative to make you alive, not you. It's a great story of this in American politics and American history. And actually a book called Born Again. It's a story of Chuck Colson. Many of you are younger, you may not know the story of Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson worked for, um, in the Nixon White House. He was part of the Watergate scandal. He was a Marine officer and a Harvard Law grad. He rose up the legal profession so fast that by his late early 30s and early 40s, he was working in the White House as Nixon's kind of chief legal counsel. He was um, a, a chief and vicious political operative. In fact, he was known as the hatchet man of the White House. And one day he ran into a man in the midst of the Watergate trials. He ran into a man named Tom Phillips, a, a friend of his, a man who ran a large company. And he had heard that, that what he described as Tom Phillips had had some sort of a religious experience. And so he went to find out about this religious experience when he was meeting with this man, Tom Phillips. And, and he said, what's going on? He said, I heard you having some sort of religious experience. You've become a Christian. And Phillips said, yes, I've trusted. I've given my, Jesus, my, my life over to Jesus and he began to share the faith, his faith with Colson. He actually gave him a book by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. In fact, he didn't just give him the book. He opened the book, and he, re- he read a, book, um, a, a chapter out of that book on pride. And he read that, and as he read, Colson felt he was, he was moved. And he felt his conscience, there was, he was like, something's going on here. This is a strange feeling. As I'm realizing his own pride in his life. And as he walked out of the door of Tom Phillips' house, and he got in his car... And he says in his own conversion account that he started to drive down the road and within a few couple hundred yards he had to pull over because he began to weep. Weep because he saw his pride for the first time. Saw his arrogance for the first time. Saw this fact that he had lived entirely selfishly his whole life and he cried out to God in that moment. This is a man, he was a Marine. This is a hardened of, hardened of, of a political, political operatives. You know political operatives? They have no soul. And yet this man gets a soul. He gets a soul. What happens there? He was experiencing new birth. That's what it is to be born again. Have you been born again? Have you been born again? Do you know that God, is, you know that God has transformed your heart? Have you been brought from death to life? You must be. That's the beginning. That's not the end. That's the beginning. All right. So that's what, what it is to be born of God. Second, how does being born of God lead to overcoming? How does being born of God lead to overcoming? That's interesting. New birth leads to three different, three different things we're going to look at. First, it leads to new faith. Second, it leads to new love. And then together, through new faith and new love, it leads to new obedience. And in that, it overcomes. But let's walk through each of those. New birth leads to a new faith. First John chapter 5, verse 4, the second half of the verse, it says this, And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Faith is what overcomes. Now, real quickly, remember, where does faith come from? Does it start with you? No. Faith comes from being brought from death to life. Faith is a gift of God. 
Verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, which means born of God precedes believing in Christ. So again, new birth precedes faith. Faith is the result of being born again. But that faith, that faith is the means by which you overcome. You know, there's a difference in, in they talk about this in, in kind of causate causational language philosophically. There's ultimate cause and there's proximate cause. Ultimate cause is the thing that ultimately makes it happen. The person who started the switch that starts the machine, right? The machine may be the proximate cause. They, they create something, but the person who built the machine or person who starts the machine is the ultimate cause. God is the ultimate cause. The new birth is the ultimate cause of your victory, of overcoming, but the proximate cause is faith. Now, what is the connection between new birth and faith? In new birth, what happens? You who were once dead, you who were blind, who were dead, unseeing, unhearing, spiritually speaking, you are now alive. And when you are alive, and when you see, you see God as he is. See, some of you have this experience in the Christian life, because I've heard your testimonies, and you go this, I grew up in the church and I never heard the gospel. For many of that's your, that's your testimony. Now, that may be true. You may have grown up in a church in which you never heard the gospel. But, for, but I think the majority of the time it's this, is that you heard the gospel week in and week out, and you did not have a heart to hear, though. It's because you did not have the eyes to see. And it wasn't until God had done a rebirthing, a regenerating work in your heart, that you began to go, I can see God. I can see me as I am. Oh, no. I can see God as he is, and praise Jesus, I can see the good news of what Jesus has done for me. That's what new birth has to do with faith. New birth makes you alive so that you can see the gloriousness and the beauty and the worthiness of Jesus, that God is worth your faith and your trust. You can see what he has done for you. That's the, that's the dynamic of between faith and new birth. That's where it begins. God and the gospel become real to you. You see it for the first time, and therefore you move towards, you inevitably be moved towards it, because you see as it ought to be, because you're spiritually alive. So that's a connection between new birth and faith. So new birth leads to faith. Second, it leads to a new love, in much the same way. Verse 1 says this, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And the next verse, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Now I want to connect something here. John is making a connection. Anyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ or has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father, those are the same people and those are the same thing. Trusting in Jesus and loving God the Father, they're a package deal. And when you have new birth in much the same way that now you can see rightly, you can see that all that Jesus has done for you in the gospel, that means I'm gonna put my faith and my trust in him and you have new eyes to see that, And much the same way, when you have new birth, you now see God as he really is in all of his beauty. That he is worthy of your affection. That's what's going on in new birth. If you believe in Jesus, you also love God. With our new eyes, we now see who God is in his gospel, and we see them as beautiful things. And so our affections go out to God. When you are reborn, you no longer have your old affections That isn't the the dominating force in your life. You have new affections. You've been brought into a new family with a new identity and a new nature. And so you want new things. And that new thing is God himself. Now those two things, new birth leading to faith, 
a new faith, and to a new love. Now it's brought together, and that, that new faith and that new love now leads to a new obedience. Read again through one, and I'm going to read this time through verse three. Everyone who loves the Father loves everyone who is born of him. So the obedience of loving those who love God as well. Verse two, by this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God, and how do we know we love God? By obeying his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Here's a key phrase to remember to understand this, this dynamic. New birth and leading to new faith and new love for God will inevitably flow into joyful obedience. It will inevitably flow into joyful obedience. When you have a new faith and a new love as a result of a new birth, it will inevitably flow into a joyful obedience of all God's commandments. When you get a new heart, when you are made spiritually alive, you will be enabled, you are empowered. When you are spiritually dead, can you obey God's commandments? No, you're dead. But now you're made alive. You're alive in Christ Jesus. And now you can obey, and not only that, but you want to obey God's commandments. And this is the dynamic that we actually see in Ezekiel chapter 36 when it talks about us being given a new heart. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27 says this. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What is that? That's taking a dead heart. It's a heart transplant, right? That's another way of, another image of saying it's new birth. You've been given a new heart, and I will put my spirit within you. And because of that, what's it say? And cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. In other words, there's a connection between being born again and obeying God's laws. And the connection is that in my new birth, I come to put my faith and trust in God, that even if I obey, as I'm obeying his commandments, he's going to provide for me. And I, when I, I can see God rightly, I love him, and therefore my greatest desire of my heart is to obey him. And not only it doesn't just say that, that you will um, obey God, but it says you'll do so in a joyful way. It doesn't use the word joyful. What does it say? His commandments are not burdensome. Burdensome. God's commandments become something that's not a burden to you. Is, God, are God, is God's law a burden to you? Is fidelity to your spouse a burden to you? Is not sleeping around a burden to you? Is not over-consuming alcohol a burden to you? Is not gossiping a burden to you? Where you're going, oh, oh, I gotta obey God. How do we get there? Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30 says that when you come to know Jesus, all those th- the law, which was crushing you before, becomes less burdensome. What does he say? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, it's only, this is really important, it is only when the commandments of God become a joyous thing in your life that you will find yourself consistently finding victory over sin. You want to defeat that pornography addiction? Listen, you should get covenant eyes. You should get accountability. But brothers and sisters, the only way you're eventually going to have victory over that sin in your life that is destroying you is if you eventually see that God's commandments are joyous. 
that it is the greatest affection of your life to obey him. It is your heart's desire. It's only when the commandments of God become a joyous thing in your life that you will find yourself finding victory in your fight against sin, in your fight against temptation, in your fight against the sufferings in this world. There is a dynamic that John is pointing out to you. There, John is, I heard someone communicate it this way, he is, um, he is simply complex in, in that he uses all words, he doesn't use very big words, but he talks in this kind of circular manner. There's a dynamic between faith and love and obedience that flows out of new birth. They play together. How does it work itself out? That new birth makes us spiritually alive so that you see God and you see yourself and you see the gospel rightly for the first time. You see that God is worthy of faith and trust and so you put your faith and trust in him. You see that God is worthy of your love and affections and so all your desires and your affections go towards him. Because you now love God instead of hating him, because you treasure him and value him above all things, the things of this world, what happens? They go strangely dim. When Christ, because you have new eyes to see, when before the trinkets of this world, all your eyes could see was all this stuff. This is my greatest treasure. But when your eyes can rightly see, you see God in all of his glory and all of his beauty, and you go, that, my affections go to that. That is my greatest delight. It's only when you found that great delight that those lesser things can be pushed to the side. John Piper puts it this way, what you desire to do with your whole heart is not burdensome to do. You ever fallen in love? Man, I did so many trips at 1.15 in the morning. I remember Meredith and I got in a spat at what, like midnight one night. And I was like, that's it. We're dealing with this issue right now. I got in my car. I drove across Orlando, which isn't that far because there's a lot of traffic lights. It takes like 40 minutes. That's it. It, is, it, it was not a burden at all. Why? Because when you desire something, when you have affection for something, the burden falls away. You love God. If you love God, his commandments become something that's your good. And this is, this is how it plays out for your life. And this is, this is the, to drive this home to you. The world, what it says, you're going to overcome the world. That's exactly what we overcome. Now, the world is anything. It's the world's temptations. But it's also the world's, all its other barriers, its sufferings and its sorrows. And what is going to happen is the world is going to place in, some, in front of you something that is beautiful. Something that wants to make you lust. And what you're going to say is you're going to say no to that. And why are you going to say no to that? Because you found something that is more precious. So you found something that's more precious. The world is going to place in front of you and put in your life loss and sorrow and suffering. And you're going to be tempted to despair. You're going to be tempted for the world to crush you. And you're going to, but, the eyes, but the eyes of new birth, you're going to see that because of what Jesus has done for you, it is worth it to suffer in this world for the sake of Christ. The world is going to place in front of you opportunities to, to, to love the bitter, to love those who are hard to love. And guess what? They're in the church, right? You're supposed to, what's the call here? That if you're going to love those who are also born again, guess what? Those born again people, they still bite. And yet the call is if you love God, that you also love your brothers and sisters. And so the barrier that, that overcoming the world is going to be, God's going to put born-again Christians in your life who are bitter, who are hard, who are not easy to love. And yet you're going to say, because I have new eyes to see, the love that God has for me, this is nothing to love this brother. This is how you overcome sin. 
me close with this, what it might look like once you're born again, and we'll go to the table. Story of Chuck Colson, some of you know it, some of you do not. He was convicted because of the, white, the, the scandal at the White House, because of Watergate, and he was sent to prison right after he'd become a believer. And so he spent about six months in federal jail down in Florida near the Panama City area. After serving his prison sentence, they released him, and he got on a plane immediately. He flew home to the Virginia area, drove home, got home, walked into the house, and he said to his wife, I will never step foot in a prison again. It's a hellhole. And he got in his bed that night, and you think first night back from prison you'd sleep well. Not exactly. In his own testimony, he said he was up all night tossing and turning with the conviction of God. And the next morning, he got back up, got back in the cab, got back on the plane, flew back to Florida, and walked back into the prison. And he began what became known as Prison Fellowship, which is the largest ministry in the world to inmates. Why? Because when your eyes have been opened to the goodness of God through new birth, it gives your life purpose and you enter into a new obedience. An obedience that you may not want to go into jails, but you do it for a greater love. Do you understand why it's so important for you to be born again? If you want to have a life like that in which you truly live, where you make an impact for God and his kingdom, where you are obeying God, then you must you got to be bored again. Let's pray, let's pray and go to the table. Those who are serving would come forward. Gracious Heavenly Father, I, I, the difficulty of this and probably the frustration that people are feeling is to say, well, if i got to be born again, and if I don't do it, then what do I do? Well, I think it's simply this, God, God invade us. We simply want to cry out to you this morning that, Lord, would you come and make alive our dead hearts? Lord, even that in and of itself, if that's our desire, that's a sign that your Spirit's already maybe done his regenerating work. We cry out to you, God, come and make us who are dead alive. If there are dead people in this room, they walk around with living bodies but dead souls, they're zombies. Gracious God, I pray that you'd make them alive, that you would renew them, that you would regenerate them, that your spirit even now this morning would go out through the word and make people new. Gracious God, we thank you for what you've done to make us new. We come to the table this morning, we set aside this bread and this cup, we come to remember what it took, what it cost. And so, Lord, we set aside this simple bread and this simple cup as we remember um, Christ's body broken for us, his blood shed for us to make us yours. I pray that your spirit would move through the bread and the cup to give us grace, to make those in this room this morning, maybe they're alive, but they feel dead. (laughs) They feel dead, that you would renew them. They don't need me made a lot of again for the first time, but what they need is they need renewal. And so, but you renew their spirits as your grace goes out. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.